This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Hello there and welcome to episode 31 of the Three Lions podcast. My name's Russell Osborne. Been a while, but here we are again. The World Cup, now a distant memory. The players have returned home, short break and back to their club sides. Pre-season has been and gone and already the Premier League, the Championships, League One, Two and pretty much all the Nations Leagues are, Nations League, clever pun, uh, are all underway. So what's been going on since we last spoke? Not a huge amount, really, but some interesting bits here and there. The youngsters have been in action over in Finland and our young Lionesses have been in FIFA World Cup action. We'll take a look back at a certain game in Manchester in 2001 against Greece. I think you know the one. Before we get there, rack your brains. How many of the starting 11 can you name from that day? And we'll also pay tribute to Paul Maidley. We may have bowed out at the semi-final stage, but there are still awards being given out for personal performances. Of course, Harry Kane was the outright winner of the Golden Boot with his six goals. Not since Ronaldo in 2002 has anyone scored more in the tournament. And of course, he joins Gary Lineker as our only other Golden Boot winner, with six to his name as well back in 1986. Harry Kane also made it into the team of the tournament, which this year was voted for by fans on uh, FIFA.com. And he's also been nominated in the Best FIFA Men's Player 2018, alongside Gareth Southgate as the Best FIFA Men's Coach. Winners will be announced early September time, and it's also worth pointing out that Lucy Bronze from the England women's side has been nominated in the Best Women's Player of 2018 too. Some other bits of news that have happened since we last spoke. It would appear that the FA are keen to extend Gareth Southgate's current contract to beyond Euro 2020. Uh, After he was given a four-year contract in November 2016, I'm sure at some stage he will be tempted back by the day-to-day club. But I think now he's quite content with the job he's doing. And I personally welcome him to stay just a little bit longer, but we all know quite how things can change ever so quickly in international football. There's also talk of bidding for the 2030 World Cup. I don't know if you've seen this, although I doubt Gareth Southgate will still be in the same job then, but you never know. Greg Clark has said no decision will be made until next year, but it does look like the FA are giving it some consideration after previously stating they wouldn't bid again due to the murky bidding process. It's also worth pointing out that 2030 will be the centenary year for the World Cup, and Uruguay, the original hosts, have already put their hat in the ring with a joint bid with Argentina and Paraguay. Be an interesting trip, that one, wouldn't it? Uh, Morocco have again stated their intention, this time alongside Tunisia and Algeria. Of an already expanded tournament in 2022, I personally wouldn't dismiss hosting it 
with Scotland and Wales. I know some people will go, ooh, no, got to be England only. But I'm thinking, who knows what state the country will be in in 12 years' time. We just may need a little help. And stadiums as large as Hamden, Ibrox and the Millennium, alongside Wembley, Old Trafford and St James's Park and plenty of others, I think would look great. Now, the international football continued. As I mentioned in the previous podcast, the UEFA Under-19 European Championships began on the 16th of July, the day after France beat Croatia. Our boys started their campaign on the 17th against Turkey. In a bit of a seesaw game, Turkey took the lead after two minutes uh, in Finland. We equalised on 22 with a goal from Jafit Tanganara from Tottenham. And just before half-time, Nottingham Forest's Ben Berriton made it 2-1. Second half began positively as Elliot Embleton from Sunderland made it 3 before Turkey pulled one back. But they also had a player sent off just before the end. Now on the Friday, we faced Ukraine. We took an early lead with a goal from Middlesbrough's Marcus Tavernier. Only for Ukraine to equalise just before half-time. Decent goal too. So we needed to beat France to stand any chance of making our way through the tournament. Sadly, it wasn't to be. France ran out 5-0 winners and the defence of our trophy was over. Although a few days later, still at stake, was a place in the under-20 FIFA World Cup. All we needed to do was beat Norway in a playoff to go to Poland and defend the trophy we won in South Korea last year. Again, sadly, this one wasn't to be either, as Norway ran out 3-0 winners, all the goals coming in the last 15 minutes. In an honest article published on the FA's website, manager Paul Simpson said, I think we have to be honest on the day we were second best and Norway fully deserved their victory. We are very, very disappointed because we didn't do enough to get a result out of the game. They were physically stronger and a little bit more robust and battle-hardened than our players. They found a way to win the game. Now what makes this maybe a little bit easier to explain was the fact that the squad taken to both the Euros in Finland uh, and the Norway game appears to have been a weaker one than anticipated. Now because it was played outside of the international window, many players' clubs didn't let their players let them travel and required them to stay for pre-season, which meant that many players who maybe previously wouldn't have been given the opportunity were selected. That said, they have given their best. Perhaps it will just be one of these ones that will be put down to experience. Although one thing I really don't understand was that because this was outside of the international window, was this situation not expected? Should this have been taken into account? Apparently, the players only had five or six days together beforehand. This really should have been addressed. It means that, as Don Smith recently explained on this podcast, the worst our men's team have done, be it seniors, under-21s or downwards, was a semi-final position. Now we've fallen out of the group stage of the under-19s Euros as holders and failed to qualify for the under-20s World Cup, a trophy, as I say, we currently hold. It's disappointing, and I imagine there will be some uh, 
Some conversations around round tables at St George's Park after all of this. Now, I said earlier that not a lot had really happened since the World Cup. Now, that's probably a bit disrespectful. I uh, I take that back. As the young lionesses took part in the Under-20 World Cup, which kicked off in the Brittany region of France on the 5th of August, England opened their account with a 3-1 win over the holders North Korea on that opening day. Mo Marley, you may remember that name. It was her who held the fort as interim manager between Mark Sampson and Phil Neville. She is now, in fact, manager of the under-20s. Now, the girls saw off North Korea with two goals from Alessia Russo and one from Manchester City's Georgia Stanway. Brazil were the next opposition on the 8th. Stanway again scored, this time from the spot after 11 minutes, but an injury time equaliser from the Brazilians meant that we only came away with a point. Now, the draw against Brazil meant that the last group game against Mexico, we needed a win to go through in top place. A draw would be dependent on other results, and it may not be enough. It didn't start too well, going in at half-time a goal down. However, Mo Marley clearly said all the right things during the break. As the young lionesses came out all guns blazing, Alessia Russo got the equaliser. Everton's Chloe Kelly gave us the lead. Then, the Manchester City duo of Georgia Stanway and Lauren Hemp scored four between them. Hemp with a hat-trick to make the scoreline 6-1, and the girls were through to the quarter-finals to face the Netherlands. That's worth searching for Hemp's goal on the Lionesses' Twitter account. It is one of the most unorthodox goals you will see, but it did count. Holland finished second, incidentally, behind France in their group. So the Friday came around and the Netherlands took a 12th minute lead, only for Georgia Stanaway to get two in three minutes, taking her tally to five for the tournament and a goal in every game she'd played in. And the girls were in to their first ever World Cup semi-final and would play the winners of the tie between Germany and Japan on the following Monday. Now the second half saw her hit the crossbar to deny her a hat-trick. Her second goal was one of perseverance hitting the post and almost turning away thinking she'd scored, but the ball ran out and at the second attempt she found the net. Now it was Japan who the girls would meet in the semi-final. Could they go one further than the men in the summer? The answer, unfortunately, would be no. There would be no similar half-time talk to the Mexico game as two first-half goals from the Japanese saw them through to the final. And as in the Summer World Cup, there is a third and fourth place up for grabs and they will face either Spain or France on Friday the 24th. Okay, and here to talk to us about the, the tournament is Rich Laverty, uh, women's football writer for, for various Twitter handles at FAWSL, These Footy Times and Our Game Magazine, uh, and I'm sure many others. Thanks for joining us, Rich. It's been a uh, been an exciting last few weeks over in France. It has, yeah. Thanks for having me on, first and foremost. Um, yeah, it's been, um, it's been a good few weeks, obviously not the ending 
that we wanted today, but I think there's been a lot of positives to take out of it, especially, I mean, I'm personally, I'm someone, a lot of people on Twitter today, you know, saying England have fallen short again and we, we don't have that ability to take it to the next step, which maybe is true. And, you know, there's always things to look at when you go out of a tournament. But I think in perspective from where we were 12 months ago, you know, going out of the group stages at the European Championships, 16 of those players were at that tournament. They didn't even get out of the group. So 12 months on to get to a World Cup semi-final, I think is, is massive progress. And obviously, they've got the chance on Friday to, to emulate what the first team did in 2015 because they can win a bronze medal. So I think there's a lot of positives to take. It's obviously not the ideal ending today, but I think it's still been a, a pretty good tournament overall for the team. So it wasn't maybe as expected to get this far in the tournament? Yeah, I, it's difficult to tell, really. I mean, they had a very hard group. Um, they had the world champions, um, North Korea, Brazil. We know what Brazil are like. You know, they're, they're always good at football at whatever level. And Mexico are a pretty decent team as well. And, and more Mali, the manager, kind of said before the tournament, you know, if we get through the group, it'll be a good achievement. And, you know, maybe she was playing down expectation or was a bit wary given what happened last year at the Euros. But it's a very good team. There's some really, really good players in the team. And, and I personally looked at it and thought, you know what, I think England can get out of the group. And the Netherlands wasn't a bad quarterfinal to have. You know, they're an OK team. They weren't anything special through the whole tournament. And, you know, that kind of put us in a position where we were in the semi-finals. And unfortunately, Japan was just a bit of a step too far. They're, they're so good in women's football at all age levels, Japan. They have an identity. They have a style. They're so good at it. And, and they were just better than England today. And there's not really any shame in that, I don't think. No, you just take that one on the chin when it's uh, when they are better. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that where Mo Marley wants to be? Because is, is, obviously she was interim manager for the for the Lionesses, um, like the, the main team. Um, is, is this where she's comfortable? Yeah, I think it is. I think more talks a bit about taking the job last year. I don't think she was ever hugely serious about it. You know, it'd be a big step up. You know, she's done this job for a long time. To all of a sudden go in, you know, to all that kind of media scrutiny and attention. And, you know, there would have been a lot of scrutiny. Obviously, Phil Neville found out off the back of kind of what happened with Mark Sampson. So, yeah, I think Mo's in a a good position there. But as well as that, she's a good coach. You know, she's really good at developing players. Players respect her. They look up to her. She's a really nice woman. Uh, I don't see any reason for why she would have wanted to leave that job, to be honest with you, because she does a good job. She develops players and, and, as I said, you know, players enjoy playing for her. And on the on the playing front, I, I guess it's fair to say that Georgia Stanway has stolen the headlines for, for England. Is there anyone else there that we should be maybe looking at as a uh, as making the next step up? Yeah, definitely. I think I think there's a few players in that squad that will go on and play for England. And it's harsh, you know. You wish all 21 could, but I think from the last. The last under-20 World Cup that England qualified for four years ago, I think seven of that 21 have gone on to play for England in the four years since. And a couple of those, you know, were only one or two caps. So it, it is very hard to make that step up. I think Stanway certainly is one of them. I think she's got a lot of things to work on in her game. I'm still not hugely certain what her best position is. 
And I don't think Man City or England really know what her best position is. But, you know, she's 18. There's plenty of time to work that out. Yeah. I think Lauren Hem, who played up front, has just joined Man City. She's a huge talent. You know, she only turned 18 during this tournament. She turned 18 after the first game. I think she scored three goals, got three assists, something like that. She's got a brilliant future ahead of her. Um, Alessia Russo, another one, had a fantastic tournament. You know, she's... For her age, Russo, she's so tall, she's so strong, you know, she's she really built well for, for a teenage girl. And she's, you can see that in her game, you know, she's so good running with the ball. She's powerful, she's got a really powerful shot on her. She can score from all kinds of positions on the pitch. I think the other one really that was a standout for me was probably the captain, Grace Fisk at the back. Um, she's had a really good couple of years playing out in America at university. She's really composed. Uh, really good defender and there's others you know a lot of it of course depends on circumstance you know if they get a good move if it works out with their clubs you know some will play at different levels to others and, and some of it comes down to a bit of luck but I think they all did themselves justice I don't think there's anyone you'd look at and say they had a bad tournament um, you don't get to a semi-final if players start having bad tournaments so but I think they were the four particularly for me that stood out but I think all 11 of the regular starters had good tournaments and, and certainly didn't do themselves a disservice. Cool. And Spain or France in the third or fourth place, can they can they grab that third place bronze medal? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I personally, France I've watched in their final group game and you know, they were okay. That they, they played a Netherlands team that rested quite a few players, but you know, they've got one or two players that are playing regularly at Lyon and playing regularly at PSG, but I think England would have a chance. I think Japan, as a game, was harder than either of those two would be. Um, Spain have looked very good, I have to say. Again, you know what you're getting with Spain. They have that style of play, don't they, where they're just good possession, passing, you know, a lot of flair, a lot of technique in their team. Their midfielder, um, Patrick Guiardo, plays for Barcelona. She's been outstanding. This tournament, if Spain gets to the final or even win it, I think she'll get probably player of the tournament. Um, yeah, England can beat either of them. I think France possibly would be the the most preferable of the two, but we'll find out. I think it's going on at the minute. It's half-time and it's 0-0, so we're not really any closer to knowing. But yeah, England can beat either of them, but you know, you get to this stage, you play a third-place playoff, you know, either one of them is going to be tough. So yeah. And moving on, well, to, towards the end of the month, there's a big game for the the Lionesses against Wales, isn't it? Mm, this is, is a big qualifier, isn't it? Well, How do you see that one? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting. I actually had my accreditation confirmed for it about an hour ago, so I'm looking forward to that one. Right. Yeah, the, it's going to be interesting. I mean, it's kind of winner takes all, and obviously there's a bit of a a rivalry there, obviously, you know, two, two local teams, basically neighbours. Um, been a lot of talk in the build-up about where Wales are playing it and, you know, they, they put it in a kind of a small ground, you know, tough pitch, you know, they want to make it difficult for England, of course, and because if Wales win, they qualify, you know, they've never qualified for a World Cup before and it will put England in a very difficult position where we probably, well, we would then be left relying on a playoff at best. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a tough game. You know, Wales—they don't have the individual players, position for position, that England do. But 
they worked so hard for each other, you know, they, they got a nil-nil draw in the game at St Mary's a few months ago and it's put them in this position, you know, they have, you know, simply, basically the same points as England and but they've scored about 15 goals less but they've just been so good defensively, it's so resolute, they've barely conceded a goal and it'll be really tough, England will have to be at their absolute best because Wales will fight and scrap and go for absolutely everything because this means everything to them. They're never going to have a better chance. They've never been closer to get into a World Cup. I see. Well, maybe we can speak to you after that game after, uh, to see your analysis on it, if you've got your, got your pass through. Yeah, love to. No problem. Rich, thank you very much for joining us and giving us your, um, your in-depth or in, your insight into the, the tournament. Thank you for that. So we can also catch you on the, it's the Offside Rule podcast, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't actually do the podcast, but I've I've been involved with them online with their website stuff, uh, basically running the online things for a while. Yeah, I don't actually do the podcast, but uh, okay. And uh, and your personal Twitter, if you use that for for if anyone wants to get in touch. Yes, yeah, so I'm on at Rich J Laverty, so it's pretty simple. First name, second name, and the the initial um, shoved in the middle. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll put a link to that on our on our twitter feed as well thank you very much for uh, for joining us thanks no problem cheers now time to take another of our look backs let's go back 17 years saturday the 8th of october old trafford manchester a game I travelled up to with a good friend of mine in what I remember was a fairly new VW Beetle. Knees under my chin in the back seats with some people who I really can't remember who they were. Now the game was against Greece. It was the final game of the qualifying campaign that had seen us lose at home to Germany in the last game at Wembley and one where we famously went to Munich and beat them 5-1. We'd beaten Finland and Albania at home and Greece and Albania away. Now, had we lost this game, we would have been looking at a qualification playoff game to go to the World Cup in Japan and Korea 2002. But instead, it was Germany who had drawn with Finland that had to go down that route, playing the Ukraine. So how many of that team to face Greece did you get? Here's the starting eleven: Nigel Martin... Gary Neville, Ashley Cole, Stephen Gerrard, Rio Ferdinand, Martin Keown, David Beckham, Paul Scholes, Robbie Fowler, Emil Heskey and Nicky Barmby. Now I've dug my programme out from the game, which still has the ticket stub. I sat in the newly built Tier 3 of the North Stand, back row, row 17, Programme's cover had David Platt scoring from the spot when the sides previously met in 1994. Inside, in a message from Tony Lynch, in big font, it says, Beware of Greeks getting goals. And that's exactly what they did. And well done, the fullback. Right to the line, and that could have, it may still be, and Harry Stiers comes, oh, it's Greece have scored! Who's been giving England so much trouble has given Greece the lead. 
The first half saw the Greeks take the lead for a free kick that Angelos Kustorides of Aris Salonika turned in on 36 minutes. And to be honest, it was nothing more than what the Greeks deserved. England struggling when they had the ball, giving it away too often. Greece getting men behind the ball, generally being the stronger of the two. They were nothing like the side that England had beaten 2-0 in Athens four months earlier. The second half saw manager Sven Goran Eriksson bring Manchester United player Andy Cole on for Nick Barmby, who'd been largely ineffective. Another sub, 67 minutes, saw Teddy Sheringham return to Old Trafford, replacing Robbie Fowler. And he had only been on the pitch for 10 seconds when he headed in a David Beckham free kick in what was, at the time, the fastest goal by an England substitute. It's still 1-0. Beckham to take the free kick. Teddy Sheringham is on. Oates come off. Oates got in. And Teddy Teddy Sheringham seems to have had an immediate effect. What an amazing... That is incredible. Well, he only just got on the pitch seconds earlier. However, the joy was short-lived as a minute later Greece found themselves up the other end of the pitch. Winning a free kick, the ball wasn't cleared and the AEK Athens striker Themis Nikolaidis turned Rio Ferdinand and put the ball past Nigel Martin. Pisas is going to come in from the far side. Basinas to take the free kick. Davizas is forward for Greece as well. Paristeas, Basinas. Martin Keon doesn't get the ball away. Oh, a chance, and it's a goal! Nikolaidis has made it 2-1 to Greece. The pressure was now beginning to tell. England came forward at every attempt. Skull's flick was saved. Beckham had a free kick into the side netting. It looked like a playoff with the Ukraine was coming. Until 93 minutes on the clock, Teddy Sheringham won what was, a, frankly, a soft free kick. But it was dead centre. About 25 yards out, up stepped David Beckham. Freshly shaven head, decked out in all white, Shirt, shorts, socks, put the ball down, sized up his options. Showing him, oh, he got a free kick out of that. Oh, that was a bit harsh again. I don't think, oh, it comes down to Nevis. I think it's got a case there, but who's arguing if you're English? Everybody, part the Greek supporters, playing for a goal. Beckham to take. The 93rd minute at Old Trafford. Beckham! Yes! Yes! He's done it! David Beckham! Fantastic! It's 2-2! And England may still be going to the World Cup automatically. It's a fantastic ending to a very, very poor performance. And he is a lucky manager and he deserves the goal because Beckham has virtually played Greece on his own. What a curler! The images are one of those that will always remain with England supporters. The ball had hit the net, Beckham run into the Stratford end, arms and legs wide open whilst in the air, fans going delirious all around, and England were on their way to the World Cup.
Now, sad news. Paul Maidley was a Leeds United legend, making 536 appearances for them. He was a one-club man. It's been well documented that he played in every position on the pitch, bar goalkeeper, in his 19 years there. I have to be honest, not being a Leeds United fan, I wasn't really aware of Maidley. So looking into his life, he seemed a real down-to-earth character. He was called up for England by Sir Alf Ramsey in 1971, where he made his debut aged 26 against Northern Ireland in a British Championship match that England won by a goal to nil. He went on to win 24 caps for his country as a defender, generally as a right-back. He was in fact called up for the 1970 Mexico World Cup, but withdrew because of family commitments. Although other sources I read, Wikipedia being one, have said that Ramsey asked him to replace fellow Leeds teammate Paul Reaney, but Maidley declined, saying he needed a rest and there'd just be a stand-in, it'd be unlikely he'd be called upon. So a year later he made that debut, and he did in fact partner Bobby Moore at centre-back in his 100th match. Maidley's last game and 24th cap came against Holland in 1977 in a 2-0 defeat at Wembley. In his time representing the three Lions, he didn't manage to score, but he won 11 games, drew 7 and lost 6. But he played under both Sir Alf Ramsey and Don Revy, who of course had those Leeds United connections too. Sadly, once he had finished playing, his life took an unfortunate route. In 1992, he had a brain tumour removed, a mild heart attack in 2002, and was then diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2004. But he remained strong and will forever be known as a Leeds legend. Paul Maidley was born on the 20th of September 1944 and passed away on the 23rd of July 2018. He was 73. Thank you for joining us. Hopefully we've got you in the mood for some more international football. Next month, the team are back in action, play Spain at Wembley in the Nations League and Switzerland in a friendly at Leicester. We'll be back before then, building up to them. We're like London buses. Wait for a little while for one and then two come along. I hope you've enjoyed this shorter podcast. Thank you very much to Rich Laverty for his insight to the Women's World Cup. You can find him on Twitter at Rich J Laverty. We're also on iTunes, we're on Spotify, we're on SoundCloud, and you can find it also at www.3lionspodcast.com. If you've got a moment, I'd be grateful if you could a chance to leave us a review, like, subscribe, all the usual places. Uh, and you can also find us on Twitter at 3lionspodcast, Facebook as well, just search 3lionspodcast, and you can join in the chat there. Again, thanks for listening. And I'll catch you again soon.